I want to welcome those who are joining us through our church Facebook page and our YouTube channel. God bless you this Sabbath day. We've got a very interesting study. We continue in our series, uh, The Closing Scenes, and how they parallel the closing crisis of Jesus Christ. Uh, but before we get going on that study here this morning, we want to, uh, we want to come before our Father in Heaven. Uh, we have some very important things on our hearts to share with Him and to ask of Him and to praise Him. So I invite you to bow your heads and especially, friends, your hearts with me now. Dear Father in Heaven, we are so, so very thankful that You are our Father. We are very, very thankful that You love us with a love that, um, that we just cannot comprehend. But we are so very thankful for you gave all heaven in your son Jesus so that we may be saved. We are so thankful for that. We thank you for Jesus, that most precious gift ever given to man. Uh, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit that you pour out upon your people uh, to help us in our daily walk, uh, to help us to, to overcome sin, which brings death, which brings misery, which brings destruction. And we are so thankful for your mercy and love towards us. In, uh, in such an, another precious gift. Uh, we thank you for the holy angels that you send to walk by our side and to help us and, and uh, to help counsel us and guide us and uh, protect us, especially in these days that we're living in where Satan is pulling out all the stops to destroy your people. Father, we humbly ask this morning that... Uh, as we praise your name, that you be very near those around the world who are dealing with these natural disasters. Uh, we don't know uh, who is bringing these. We, you know, there are times when you raise them up to reach people. There are times that Satan controls things. That doesn't matter to us. We wish the people to be saved, people to come to know thee. And you can use such things as this to reach souls. It's also a warning at how time is short. And decisions need to be made. So please protect these dear souls. Help them, Lord, to come to see thee and to give their hearts to you uh, so that they may be in the kingdom. Father, please be with our friends and family, especially in Florida. Protect them, those that we know in Georgia and these states that will be affected by this Hurricane Irma and the follow-up of Jose. We pray for those in those islands that have been devastated. We pray that you will comfort them and bring peace to their hearts. And uh, may we meet these people someday in the kingdom. And Father, please be with those on our prayer lists, uh, those who are suffering the loss of loved ones, those who are dealing with health issues and, and, and critical care. Uh, we pray that you be with the doctors and nurses and especially be with them. Uh, we pray for Bart, that you will reach his heart and that it will be open. Uh, to your pleading uh, to give his life to thee. And, uh, Father, we especially pray for the church. We pray that we will come into unity of spirit and, and spread this message, this end-time message you've given us, this mission. Uh, help us, Lord, to reach out and be like Jesus to our family, our neighbors, and the world. And give me the words to speak this morning. This is so, uh, so important of a topic to understand. May they be your words, not mine, uh, not my opinions either. Uh, but, uh, Lord, may hearts be open to the truth. And uh, we pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. 
<clears throat> well, friends, I want to continue our series by... It's blurry when I look at you. <laughs> there. Uh, you know, I, I got new glasses I got to go pick up, and I'm glad. I hope they help because I'm, I'm switching between glasses all the time. Uh, the glasses to read on, on the laptop and, you know, electronic stuff and then regular glasses. And you get that certain point where it's blurry if I look up at people. And, and so, um, anyway... But I want to continue in our series by looking at the cross and seeing what parallels it has to the closing scenes of this world for the remnant people of God. Um, and as I begin, I want to share this a statement with you. It's from a Signs of the Times article, April 11th, uh, 1892. Notice this. It goes right along with our, our theme that we've had uh, through this series. There is a path cast up for the ransomed of the Lord to walk in, and we are on our way to the haven of rest. Let us go forward, not backwards, friends. Let us go forward, united to Christ as closely as is the branch to the vine, with our life hid with Christ in God. And so, friends, you and I are going to Calvary in just a little while. We're, we're to go over, you see, the road that Jesus traveled, and we must have our life hid with Christ and God if we will finish that walk here, now, as he did then. We must follow, first follow him here. Amen? Remember what the Bible says concerning the remnant there in Revelation 14 and verse 4. These are they which do what? They follow the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. They follow Jesus whithersoever he goeth. And like I said before, if you wish to follow him in heaven, we must first follow him here. Jesus was given a mission, you see, friends, uh, by the Heavenly Father. And he came to this world to fulfill that mission. He was born of a woman, the Bible says, right? Just as each of us has been born of a woman. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, he lived a righteous life being an example unto us in all things, friends. And we too are to live a righteous life through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the closing scenes of his mission, we see incredible parallels to the closing scenes of the remnant people that will soon take place. I hope that you've seen this. Now, what are these parallels, right? Well, they cannot be denied if you look into them. Jesus warned the disciples about the sifting that was to come, didn't he? The remnant's been warned about the sifting. Jesus went through a tremendous Gethsemane experience, and the remnant will as well, if they wish to be victorious as Jesus was. Jesus was met by the mob that took him away, and the remnant is going to face the mob, friends. Jesus was put on trial. He was falsely convicted of blasphemy and sedition. The remnant will be falsely accused like he was. He suffered alone. The remnant is going to suffer uh, being alone. Now, we, we will flee in groups and stuff, but that's I'm talking about this, this spiritual walk, the spiritual applications of that. This remnant will suffer alone. And some will be alone, you know, in their experience. The remnant will experience all these things uh, that the Savior experienced. And by their holy lives, friends, the last generation of God's people are to demonstrate to all creation that the life of Jesus as a man filled with divinity was not a sham. 
neither was it a fluke. But it was the fulfilling of the love of God in humanity. And so because of their faith, they will walk as Jesus walked and they will be with Jesus forever. Amen and amen. That's what we've got to look forward to, beloved. And now we come in Jesus' experience to Calvary. And what do we see? What will the remnant go through in bearing their cross as Christ did? Let's go to Luke chapter 23. And let's look at verse, we'll begin with verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Now, friends, as, I, as I've pointed out, there is much in the agony of the Savior in Gethsemane and on the cross that human beings can never fathom, and I don't think we ever will. But there's also a lot that we can understand through having an experience like Jesus and only through an experience like Jesus. This is our cup to drink, you see, friends. And the question is, will we drink it? Now, Paul longed not only to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, as you recall, but before that, he longed for the fellowship of his sufferings, he says. And to the remnant church will be given, in a special measure, the great privilege to drink of his cup and to be baptized with his baptism. And we've seen that as Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he took himself to what? He took himself to prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the remnant, knowing the time according to the prophetic clock that we do, friends, and the things we see happening all around, we must take ourselves to prayer. We must enter into that experience in the same way as our Savior did. As it says in early writings, page 269, with strong faith and agonizing cries, pleading with God. And the pleading won't be to take us out of the suffering the pleading will be for the strength to carry us through. And those who Jesus invited to pray with him, what'd they do? They slept through much of that time there in Gethsemane. And so today, there are those who, while professing, uh, professing a, a fellowship with the Savior, they sleep in the closing scenes. And we've seen how the coming of the mob finds Jesus alert. He's ready for the mob, isn't he? And the disciples, we find, they were unprepared. So we must take note of these things, and we must make necessary changes in our walk so that we would be more like Jesus and not like those disciples then. Because today, the hour of persecution will find those who have pled with God and received the latter rain ready to meet the mob, while those who, like the disciples, slept will perhaps... After first a show of strength, remember, as Peter showed, they leave the church in that crisis hour in these closing scenes. Never forget 
That's those who fail of spiritual experience and strength who will be the ones who flee. The remnant that remain, what do they do? They gather strength from the process, exhibiting the beauty of holiness, the Bible says, and amid the surrounding apostasy. They will be as Enoch. Enoch's to the world. Have you ever read any of that in the spirit of prophecy? The last generation will be a generation of Enoch's. And as Jesus in the judgment hall gave that supreme exhibition of meekness and, and, and love, so the remnant people in the closing hour, they will reveal to the entire world their persecutors in all creation, really, who look on such forgiving love as the Savior manifested, for they will be like Him. Are we as a people ready to make such a demonstration, friends? You've heard me read this before. It's from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people. Notice she says, perfectly reproduced. Then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian, not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory? How quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Now, coming directly to the climax of the Savior's trial, let's note several details that are to be paralleled in the closing scenes for the remnant people of God. Let's think of what brought about that death decree upon the Savior. Put yourselves there, friends. In the first place, it was a uniting of religious prejudice and bigotry with political power. That's what crucified the Savior. Do we not see the same prejudices and bigotry uniting with political power in our country, especially today? We sure do. The mob, influenced by the leaders of the Jewish church, they clamored for the blood of Jesus. Do we not see mobs demonstrating in our streets today? Who is it that influences these mobs to riot and demonstrate so violently? And we're all familiar with the story of how Pilate was drawn along. He was pulled along and pressed along until finally, yielding to their insistence, he signed the death decree for Jesus. Are not the leaders in our government today swayed by the same kinds of righteous mobs? Now I want you to note the agencies that combine in the story they're given in Luke 23. Let's go to Luke 23, begin with verse 20. This is speaking of the mob who were, who were influenced by the religious leaders. Notice what we read. Luke 23, verse 20. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. <coughs> and notice verse 23 says, And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. 
And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, Barabbas, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now I want you to notice how this mob is described in the book, The Desire of Ages. This is on page 733. This is that mob. They brought Jesus in. Then they come before Pilate. And this is that mob that's clamoring for Jesus to be crucified. Desire of Ages, page 733. Again, the surging multitude roared like demons. Demons themselves in human form were in the crowd. And what could be expected but the answer? Let him be crucified. The people and demons, you see, joined in that cry for the blood of Jesus. And don't think that this great persecution is going to be something that a few evil-minded you know, individuals are going to put over on the masses today. Friends, the whole world itself is going to crucify Christ afresh in the person of his saints. And beloved, the 13th chapter of Revelation clearly shows that there will be such mass pressure by the mob in our country that legislatures will... Our legislators will yield to the popular demand to sentence the remnant people of God. And then the whole world will then follow suit. They will follow the example of the United States. Revelation 13, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That's a death sentence. That's a death decree. And friends, as you look back through history, the history of God's people, legislation in matters of religion has always been followed by persecution. Every single time. It was so during the Dark Ages as we witnessed the, the massacre of the Albigen Seas, the Walden Seas and others by the civil power. But that civil power was prompted by the dominant church at that time, the Catholic Church. And in its attempt to make all earth's inhabitants give allegiance to the first beast, the second beast will issue a decree, that death decree, threatening death on all who maintain their loyalty to God. Let me share this with you from the Great Controversy, page 615. <clears throat> As the Sabbath has become the special point of controversy throughout Christendom, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of the Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal execration. You know what that word execration means? It means an angry denouncement with cursing, like Peter did when he denied his Lord. Remember the third time? He denounced Jesus with cursing, the Bible tells us. And this is what's going to happen with God's people. We will be objects of universal execration. But I want you to notice that the religious and secular authorities combine in this great persecution that's just ahead. They did the same with Jesus. They will again with his people, his remnant people. And notice that it was through fear of the people that Pilate yielded. He didn't find any fault in Jesus, but he yielded to have him killed anyway. He was yielding to mass pressure from the mob. From the book Early Writings, page 174. 
Through fear of losing his power and authority, Pilate consented to the death of Jesus. It was fear. Fear of what? Losing his power and authority. You see, he was a politician. And he yielded to the pressures of the mob, the people. And so the same will be seen by the politicians of the last generation. We see it today, do we not? Notice this. Go back to the Great Controversy, page 592 this time. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe. Now, who's going to unite? The dignitaries of church and state, church and government. To do what? To bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, to do what? To secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Are we not seeing this happening before our very eyes? This this uh, caving in of these politicians, these legislators, seeking to secure public favor? It's lining up, isn't it, friends? So can you see the pair? The, it's a, actually a striking parallel between what they were doing there with Jesus and what the remnant will be going through. Pilate yielded to the popular demand to sign the death decree against the Savior. And so again, legislators will yield to the popular demand that the people of God shall be put under condemnation. As back there, the religious leaders, remember, demons in human form, stirred up the people so it'll be down here today. Same thing. Can you see the parallel? And I want you to, uh, I, I want it to be clear to you who it is that is leading the charge here. As we saw in our last study, this persecution of the saints begins within the church. And at that time, it was the religious leaders that were used by Satan to bring uh, to focus the thought that Jesus should be put out of the way. Remember? The religious leaders. Let's think about that for a moment. John tells us, the Apostle John, he tells us that Caiaphas had what, what he thought was a great inspiration on how to deal with this Jesus. Let's go to John chapter 11. I want you to notice this. John chapter 11, verses 49 50. says, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. You see, Caiaphas put forth the thought that even if Jesus was innocent, he still should be killed because his influence tended to unsettle everything and that was destroying the authority of the religious leaders. It would eventually cause the Romans to take away their nation if Christ was allowed to go on. And so he said the question of whether Christ was innocent or not was beside the point. He was a danger to all Israel by causing national turmoil and it's better for the nation that he should be put to death than lose the whole nation. And what they dared not realize, friends, was that it was their own apostasy as God's professed people that was causing the national ruin already. Now, does that not sound familiar? National ruin? 
Notice this, last day events, page 134. When the state shall use its power to enforce the decrees and sustain the institutions of the church, that's church, state, united, that's an image to the beast, then will Protestant America have formed an image to the papacy and there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. You see, Caiaphas thought he'd found an incredible way to deal with it all and remain the favorite of the people, the favorite of Rome, well, maybe not the favorite of Rome, but favorite of the people, Rome and God. But Caiaphas, you see, was deluded and he was demon-possessed, just like the mob. Let's go to the book Desire of Ages, page 539. Even if Jesus were innocent, urged the high priest, he must be put out of the way. He was troublesome, drawing the people to himself and lessening the authority of the rulers. He was only one. It was better that he should die than that the authority of the rulers should be weakened. If the people were to, to lose confidence in their rulers, the national power would be destroyed. Caiaphas urged that after this miracle, now he's speaking about the miracle of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. Powerful miracle there. But he said, it says Caiaphas urged that after this miracle, the followers of Jesus would likely rise in revolt. The Romans will then come, he said, and will close our temple and abolish our laws, destroying us as a nation. What's he saying? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and Caiaphas is saying, oh, that's just what we need. Instead of repenting and coming back to God, no, 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 we need to get rid of God altogether. We just need to be in charge, not Rome. Destroying us as a nation. What is the life of this Galilean worth in comparison with the life of the nation? If he stands in the way of Israel's well-being, be well is it not doing God a service to remove him? What's he saying? If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands in the way of Israel's well-being, really? Is it not? <laughs> is it not doing God a service to remove him? Better that one man perish than that the whole nation be destroyed. It's incredible. Now, note the parallel down here today for the remnant of God from the Great Controversy, page 615. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the state ought not to be tolerated that it is better for them to suffer than for whole nations to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. The same argument many centuries ago was brought against Christ by the rulers of the people. It is expedient for us, said the wily Caiaphas, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. This argument 
will appear conclusive and a decree will finally be issued against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Friends, this is the very argument that's going to secure the death decree for the remnant people. It's exactly what secured the death decree against Jesus, and that will bring the death decree against the saints in the world's closing scenes. Now, I want you to notice the similarity of some of the expressions uh, dealing with those scenes back there as they are reenacted with the remnant people. My eye caught four words. I'm going to show you here in just a moment. My eye caught four words so closely paralleled in the experience of Jesus and the experience of the remnant. You remember the scene as Pilate finally signed the death decree and turned Jesus over to the mob. And they took Jesus and led him away to Calvary to crucify him. There's a little expression in the book Early Writings that gives a picture of the mob's spirit. I want to share it with you. Early Writings, page 175. The Son of God was delivered to the people to be crucified. With shouts of triumph, they led the dear Savior away. With shouts of triumph. Four words. With shouts of triumph. Have you ever been around a howling, hooting, boisterous, I mean, it's worse than boisterous, uh, mob of people? Yeah. Well, before I was a Christian, I would attend sporting events and concerts in Indianapolis at the, the, the Marcus Square Arena, and then it was the Hoosier Dome. Uh, stadium there. And let me tell you that the noise from a crowd in such places would hurt your ears it was so loud. You couldn't hear yourself talk at all. The shouts of triumph from the fans are an incredible thing to behold, really. But it can be frightening if they're shouting at you. And it reminded me of the things you read about concerning the Christians you know, uh, during the persecutions there in Rome and, and in the Roman Colosseum. Now, I want you to notice that expression again with shouts of triumph. This is picturing the final scene as the, the hour comes for the execution of the death decree upon the remnant people. From the Great Controversy, page 635. With shouts of triumph, jeering and epication, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey. imprecation. We're going to hear those same kinds of shouts against us, cursings. and We're going to hear those same kinds of shouts against us that Jesus heard against him, friends. And it's true that, now you say that, crucify him, and it's true that the remnant will not actually be killed as Jesus was killed. Oh yeah. But there is a, uh, but the, um, that parallel of being crucified on the cross, I mean, that's not followed. As death 
uh, decree of the remnant would serve no purpose, you see, in, in saving one soul as, well, human probation is already closed at that time. So every case has already been decided. But Jesus actually died. They, they nailed him to the cross and he was hung up and he died, you see. But the deliverance of the remnant will come just at the point of death. But as we'll see, friends, they will go through many of the experiences that Jesus went through. And I want to, to say to you that the worst thing about dying is not to quit living. The actual expiring of, of the Savior there on the cross was a release for him from the awful anguish and suffering that he'd been going through for hours. And the agony and the anguish that the saints experienced during the time uh, of trouble, you know, uh, described as the time of Jacob's trouble, will be far great, a far greater trial than the death of the martyrs. That's a release. That's why Paul said, I've run my course. I've run. He was ready. He was ready to rest. But I don't want you to ever forget that. It is a fact that the remnant people will not be executed. Those, those people who, who take the latter reign and the last message to the world, symbolized by the 144,000 we read about in Revelation. Last day events, page 264. <clears throat> the people of God will not be free from suffering, but while persecuted and distressed, while they endure privation and suffer for want of food, they will not be left to perish. If the blood of Christ's faithful witnesses were shed at this time, it would not, like the blood of the martyrs, be as seed sown to yield a harvest for God. So I don't want you uh, to think, oh, that means it's going to be much easier. <laughs> don't let that obscure the fact that this will be a severe trial, just as it was for Jesus. He bore the test and trial. He bore the cross, and the remnant will follow him whithersoever he goeth, except for that final death. For it will be a trial and a test greater than mere physical death, friends. Like I said, Jesus suffered many things on the cross that you and I will never know. He had resting upon him the weight of the sins of the whole world. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon him. And I think we do well to med meditate upon that. But that's not our subject. We are studying particularly those experiences of Jesus which to some extent we shall enter into as the remnant people. Now we read at the beginning of our study that various groups of people united in deriding Christ as he hung upon the cross. Right? The rulers derided him. Remember what they were saying? He saved others. Let, let him save himself if he be Christ. The soldiers representing the government. So you have church, state. They mocked him saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And even the thieves, you know, those thieves that were hanging next to him, they said, if you are really the Christ, save yourself and us. And others of the gospel writers tell us that the multitude that passed by joined in that reviling of our Savior. And so from one another came the words, if you are really the Christ, why don't you come down from the cross? And I believe in their ignorance. They thought that they'd made a valid excuse for their unbelief. 
They thought that the silence of Christ and, and, and the apparent weakness of Christ proved that his claims were false and that he was not truly the Son of God. Because surely the Son of God wouldn't be put to death. But you and I know, friends, that it was because of love and pity that he hung there and bore all that abuse and stayed on the cross when he might have come down. If he would have come down, we'd be lost. And the remnant's going to suffer in a similar way, the howling of the mob and the jeering and the curses that Jesus suffered. Let's go back to early writings, page 283. It was an hour of fearful, terrible agony to the saints. Day and night they cried unto God for deliverance. To outward appearance, there was no possibility of their escape. The wicked had already begun to triumph, crying out, why doesn't your God deliver you out of our hands? Why don't you go up and save your lives? But the saints heeded them not. And friends, I think, personally, I think it's somewhat comforting to our spirit to know that the same expressions were used by the people around the cross against the Savior. And, and what I mean by that is that we know what he endured as our example and in some way, that makes it tolerable for us to do as he did. Let's go to the great controversy, page 630. Yet to human sight, it will appear that the people of God must soon seal their testimony with their blood, as did the martyrs before them. They themselves begin to fear that the Lord has left them to fall by the hand of their enemies. It is a time of fearful agony. Day and night they cry unto God for deliverance. The wicked exult, and the jeering cry is heard, Where now is your faith? Why does not God deliver you out of our hands if you are indeed his people? But the waiting ones remember Jesus dying upon Calvary's cross, and the chief priests and rulers shouting in mockery, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. No, you would not. And so, friends, as we tread the wine press, won't it be a wonderful thing to look back and know that Jesus endured in an infinitely greater way all that we will be experiencing? Will it not in some way be an honor to suffer for His name's sake? And the remnant will suffer as He did, for these are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever He goeth. Now, do you know what the angels' reaction was when they heard the chief priests and the soldiers and the multitude deriding Jesus, saying, if He is the Christ, why doesn't He deliver Himself? Do you know what they wished to do? What do you think the angels of heaven wish to do at that very moment? Let's go to early writings, page 177. The angels who hovered over the scene of Christ's crucifixion were moved to indignation as the rulers derided him and said, If he be the Son of God, let him deliver himself. They wished there to come to the rescue of Jesus and deliver him but they were not suffered to do so. The object of his mission was not yet accomplished. Can you imagine the scene? 
Jesus is on the cross. The multitude is urging him to come down if he's the Christ. There's commotion among the angels. They want to go and deliver him right there and prove that he's the Christ. But that tall, commanding angel bids them not, for his mission has not been completed. Now, I want you to notice how striking the parallel is during the end time for the remnant and the reaction of the angels of God. Early Writings, page 272. Soon after they had commenced their earnest cry, the angels in sympathy desired to go to deliver him. They wanted to deliver them. But the tall commanding angel suffered them not. He, not. he said, the will of God is not yet fulfilled. Why? They must drink of the cup. It's our cup to drink, beloved. It's our cup to drink. They must drink of the cup. They must be baptized with the baptism. And for some reason, I like to believe that it's the same angels that wanted to deliver Jesus that will want to deliver the remnant. <laughs> and it may be. It may not be. But God's purpose must be fulfilled, you see. The saints must drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Christ was baptized with. The cross is our cup, beloved. And we must drink it as surely as Jesus did. Not by physically dying as he did, but mentally, emotionally, especially spiritually. We must be baptized with his sufferings and demonstrate to all creation his character traits in humanity. Now the next thing I'd like to have you notice is the darkness that fell upon Calvary as Christ entered into the deepest and, 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 and the most difficult experiences of, of his closing crisis there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we'll look at verse 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. That's about um, from noon to three, Jerusalem time. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know what's really interesting is when Jesus quote a lot of what Jesus quoted and a lot of things that Jesus said was right out of the Old Testament. And the same is true with this. Did you know that? These are the opening words of Psalm 22. David was writing prophetically a thousand years before this scene took place. He wrote down the words and the thoughts of the Savior as he hung there in the in the deepening darkness surrounding Calvary. Let's look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am, am not silent, but thou art holy. O oh, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm 
and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now I won't read it all. But I encourage you to meditate on Psalm 22 and remember that these were the things that were in the mind of Jesus as he hung there at Calvary in that total darkness. And as you read it and you meditate on it, you'll note that there was a struggle of faith and hope. He seemed to himself to be forsaken, not only by men, but also by God. There was no intercessor for him. And I want to, I want to, to give you a picture of this as it's presented in the Testimonies for the, Ch- for the Church, Volume 2. This is a wonderful chapter on the sufferings of Christ. It speaks of it as an amazing darkness, you see, that, that hovered over the cross and especially about the soul of Christ, about Jesus himself. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 214. He had not one ray of light to brighten the future. And he was struggling with the power of Satan who was declaring that he had Christ in his power. And so here's Jesus surrounded by this this complete darkness. My Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Not one ray of light. How did Jesus get through that struggle? Well, friends, when hope was gone, faith and love carried him through. Faith in his Father's justice and love for the people for whom he was giving his life. That's us. And as far as his relation with God, he had to fight the battle by faith alone. Now, there are a few words here that tell volumes on which we need to meditate upon, friends. Let's back up a few pages from that same source, volume 2, the testimonies, page 210. Faith and hope trembled in the expiring agonies of Christ because God had removed the assurance he had heretofore given his beloved son of his approbation and acceptance. He turned his back on him. Now let's see how did Jesus get through this experience as God the Father, his Father, turned his back. Total darkness, no ray from heaven, no ray of light. She says, the Redeemer of the world then relied upon the evidences which had hitherto strengthened him that his father accepted his labors and was pleased with his work. So Jesus' baptism, you remember, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He said it again at the transfiguration. But there was no voice now. There in the darkness there at Calvary. There was no dove that came to Calvary. There was no ray of light from heaven. All was darkness. It was so dark, friends, that all witnessing the scene trembled. They were as blind men. Some crawled back to Jerusalem upon the ground. You see, our Father in heaven was showing the the world and all creation the result of sin utter darkness and death. 
from the Desire of Ages, page 754. Men, women, and children fell prostrate upon the earth. Vivid lightnings occasionally flashed forth from the cloud and revealed the cross and the crucified Redeemer. Priests, rulers, scribes, executioners, and the mob all thought that their time of retribution had come. After a while, some whispered that Jesus would now come down from the cross. Some attempted to grope their way back to the city, beating their breasts and wailing in fear. It was dark, friends. It was dark. No ray of light from heaven. Let's go back to the testimonies. Volume 2, pages 210 to 11. I encourage you to read it yourself. In his dying agony, speaking of Jesus, as he yields up his precious life, he has by faith alone to trust in him whom it was has ever been his joy to obey. He is not cheered with clear bright rays of hope on the right hand or on the left. All is enshrouded in oppressive gloom. So how did Jesus win the victory? By faith and by faith alone. Now, friends, do you see a deeper meaning in Revelation 14, 12? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus. And I say to you, if we are to keep the faith of Jesus, we must first get the faith of Jesus. Amen? We must have it, and then we must hang on to it. Testimonies to to the church for the church, volume 5, page 215. Oh, for a living, active faith. We need it. We must have it, or we shall faint and fail in the day of trial. The darkness that will then rest upon our path must not discourage us or drive us to despair. It is the veil with which God covers His glory when He comes to impart rich blessings. We should know this by our past experience. What? We should know this by our past experience. That's what, it took, Je- that's what took Jesus through, His past experience of exercising faith. When did He get it? And Calvary? Oh, no, friends. All along the way, exactly. He got it in Judea and Berea. He got it, uh, the climax of it in Gethsemane. And you and I need to be getting an experience from day to day and knowing for ourselves the will of God. And by exercising faith, we can know that God accepts us, you see. We can't afford to drift along to the time of trouble without a deep faith experience in our walk. We must have an experience and then as we go into the darkness of Jacob's trouble, we will be able to rely upon the experiences that God has hitherto given us, just as Jesus did. We will have had an experience in claiming the promises of His Word by faith and we will be anchored during the storm and tempest, you see. Thus we will be able to stand without an intercessor 
like Jesus did, for the remnant will no longer choose to sin. They would rather die than sin. And must we stand without an intercessor through the time of trouble? Oh, yes. And as Jesus won the victory by faith alone, so in the time of trouble we must win the victory by faith alone. Remember, being a demonstration to all creation, there's a generation of humanity that has the character of Jesus perfectly revealed in their life. The Great Controversy, page 621. The season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. A faith that will not faint, though severely tried. Those who are unwilling to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long and earnestly for His blessing, will not obtain it. Wrestling with God, how few know what it is. When waves of despair which no language can express sweep over the suppliant, how few cling with unyielding faith to the promises of God. Oh, friends, I pray that we shall understand that this is why time has been stretched out for us to give us an opportunity to gain this kind of experience. It isn't because the nations aren't wicked enough, friends. It isn't because there are some prophecies that have to be fulfilled and nothing can be done until those prophecies are fulfilled. All that has been written on the prophetic scroll will unroll fast, friends. It'll become history whenever the people of God have the experience that this is talking about. You see, you and I have the key. If we will enter in with Jesus and have an experience in getting rid of sin, claiming God's promises, relying on the righteousness of Christ, having the burden of guilt rolled away, receiving power for witnessing, these other events will follow in rapid succession. And we shall be ready for our homecoming to see Jesus come in the clouds. And friends, let us remember this. Those who triumph with Jesus will first suffer with Him. Those who follow Him in the glory will first follow Him through the shame. Those who share His throne will first share His cross. And before the cross must come the trial and the test. And before the trial and the test must come Gethsemane. And before Gethsemane must come a day-by-day experience over a period of time to develop a character and a prayer experience that can successfully meet these closing scenes, this crisis at the end. Now I believe this is the message for this hour. This is the thing to fix our minds upon. Let the winds blow as they may. I'm not speaking about the hurricanes. Let Satan invent all manner of things to distract. Let him say, low here or low there. We don't go there. There is one object that we must fix our eyes upon, beloved. We must keep looking up to Christ. We must see Him to become like Him. We must follow Him wherever He goes. You know, the first vision that was given to Ellen White, at that time her name was still Harmon, was given in December of 1844 in South Portland, Maine. 
She said she raised her eyes and saw a narrow path cast high above the world. And on this path, the Advent people were traveling. And who was at the head? It was Jesus. And from his right arm came a glorious light that he waved over the Advent people. And and those of you who remember, do you remember what she said in this vision? As she's she's relaying this vision? Yeah. It's in the day star, January twenty fourth, eighteen forty six. She said, And if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. I think that's wonderful, friends. If they kept their eyes on Jesus, they were perfectly safe. Why do we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus? It isn't just some figure of speech, some arrangement of words and some poetic fancy. It's not just a a cliche that I throw out there all the time. Keep looking up. As no group of people has ever done in past ages, this people, the remnant, must follow the Lamb. And if you're going to follow someone, you have to keep your eye on them. It's really that simple and it's that important. Now let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God in Gethsemane. Behold the Lamb of God in the experiences that prepared Him and that will prepare us for the closing scenes of this earth. It's been my experience, friend, that every dark hour, after every dark hour, there is a glory hour. And the darkest hour will bring a prelude to the most glorious hour. And we must learn that every day and every week in our experience, we must learn that. We must trust that by faith. Whenever we go into something dark, we're to say, there must be something wonderful just ahead. God help me to pray through this dark experience because there is glory beyond. Psalms 30 verse 5, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, friends. Joy cometh in the morning. We must know that and have it learned so well before we go into the time of trouble that we won't faint and fail in that day of trial. One of the most important lessons that heaven is trying to teach us is to walk by faith and to accept the mission of the Father from day to day. In John 18, verse 11, Jesus said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Oh, how how much we could learn if we would just be willing to accept the mission, friends. But there's so much mental effort used in trying to escape the mission, to evade the mission, run away from it, or pass it on to someone else, anything to get away from the mission. Now, God knows our human nature is like that, friends. But Jesus went to Gethsemane to get that power from heaven that would enable him to drink the cup. Will you choose to drink the cup? Or will you merely pray, let this cup pass? Will you drink the cup from day to day? Will you say, I've been spending time and trying to avoid the cup, that I... 
that I ought to have spent praying to God on my knees for grace to take the cup. I've been spending time evading responsibilities that I should have spent accepting and caring responsibilities. I've been spending time trying to figure out my way and get my way done when I should have spent time in praying for, for God to help me to accept His way and how to fit in with His plans for me and others. To fulfill the mission. To be that demonstration to the world of Jesus Christ, of God our Father. Oh, friends, I challenge you in Jesus' name, don't try to get away from the cup. It's the Father's hand that holds it. Trust your Father, for He loves you and is ever faithful to His promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much that it is Thee that does hold the cup. Father, we pray and humbly ask that you pour out your Spirit to all of us, that you help us with the day-to-day experience, accepting the mission day-by-day, learning through our prayer experience, our failures, our victories, that joy cometh in the morning, and that we may be prepared for what's coming. Help us to unite one to another, shoulder to shoulder, in unity of spirit, to show the world and all creation that we are a united front against the enemy. With Jesus at our head, please continue to be with us. To this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.